stop bullying and shouting at the lower orders? Never! There's only one way to win a campaign. Shout, shout and shout again! This is Shot and Shield. Listening in Croydon, England, Split in Split, Dalmatia, Croatia, and Dhaka, Bangladesh. I am your Marquis de Podcast Deluxe, the Colonel of the Colonies, the Grand Duke Scott of the Duchy of Florida. This is the Shot and Shield Supercast, dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. Take him to the tower and teach him the error of false pride. In today's program, I am joined by friend of the podcast and wargaming zone, Bon Vivant, Claude Bailey, to talk about gambling in wargaming. It was a very interesting conversation. I also will present to you two selections from the audio archives called Lives of Great Men plus the top five reveal and scenario builder and a movie review. But first, it's time to answer some emails. Germany calling, London calling, Moscow calling, Washington DC calling, Peking calling, Sydney calling. Message for you, sir. It's time to answer some emails from all around the world. Now you can hit me up on the email. You're looking at shotandshield at gmail.com. You got a question, you got a concern, you got, uh, I don't know, you almost want to complain, you want to say I suck. Hey, that's cool. Bring it on. Uh, The first email comes from Quinn in Columbia. Lord Scott, greetings from Bogota. I am a computer programmer living in Columbia, and you've never seen a great movie like Gunga Din until you've seen it in the original Latino version. Uh, Shout out to Chekhov, he says. <laughs> Star Trek Chekhov, every time it was... Go watch, go watch Star Trek, and you'll understand. He continues. It was just on here, and it made me think, why doesn't the Lord Scott review more famous colonial movies like Gunga Din? Many thanks, Quinn. Okay, so look, I'll answer that in just a second. I have another email from Wilson in Minnesota. Check this out. Wilson writes, to whom it may concern, (laughs) can you please make sure Scott receives this email question? I hope he reads it. I have been listening to his show and he made references to movies which I've never heard of, such as Gunga Din, 55 Days at Peking, The Men Who Would Be Kings. At first, I thought these were gaming rules, but then I learned that they are movies. Please tell him that I normally play Warhammer, but I am becoming interested in history wargaming. Thank you. Okay, so Quinn in Colombia. I don't know what to say about the Latino version of Gunga Din, but I'm sure it's awesome. Uh, And Wilson in Minnesota. You know, at first I was thinking to myself, who could not have heard of these movies? But I have to realize that I just had a birthday. I'm 55 years old. I remember when it came out, (laughs) you know, I've seen it 5,000 times. uh, And there's uh, some people in the world, you know, uh, young, younger, younger people who have never heard of some of these movies, you know, because how are you going to hear the movies unless, you know, you have this affinity for old time, old time movies such as Gunga Din. Okay. And I, uh, so I'm not, I'm not giving you a hard time, Wilson. I, I really appreciate that you're, that you're interested, uh, you're becoming interested in historical war gaming and a uh, 19th century is, uh, I think is a good place to start. That's just my opinion. Uh, but as far as I, you know, have seen these two emails and, and, and 
enjoying these two emails, I thought to myself, you know what? I, it's true. I, I've tried to steer away from doing movie reviews for movies we all know, or at least I thought we all knew, right? So today, yes, Gunga Din is going to be the movie review. So that's, I wanted to make sure that, uh, <laughs> I wanted to make sure that I, I announced it, but I wanted to put some context to it, not just say right out of the start, hey, I'm going to be busting into some Gunga Din today. But come to find out, guess what? I'm busting into some Gunga Din today, and that's going to be today's movie review. So let me continue with the emails here. Uh, a lot of response to my uh, discussion or my highlight of the Haitian Revolution from last episode. Um, this one, uh, this email is from Terry in Ohio, and he writes, Scott, I enjoyed your breakdown of the Haitian Revolution. The only thing that I would have liked to hear was some actual suggestions for figures. I mean, you did tell us what kind of figures to look for, but can you be more specific? Is there a company you recommend? A series of figures you'd recommend? You have already convinced me to play this arena, but I want more. <laughs> I love the show. Keep up the good work. All right, Terry. So just, just to be quick here, I'm not going to recommend any specific company. I have companies that I like. You have companies you like. I'm just suggesting that you go and, and, and really dig into the companies that you like to see if they have something that's comparable that can that you can, will help you play in the Haitian Revolution. Okay, I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you uh, some suggestions here in just a second. But first, uh, uh, Sean Houston, who is a friend of the podcast, um, he posted something in the Shot and Shield podcast wargaming group site uh, on Facebook, and uh, the the company is called Skytrex. Skytrex, and so that's I I don't know that company. He knows that company. He suggested it, and they're you know so you can go to those guys because I think they have some um, some what well, they have wars in the Caribbean, and that's the that's the title of the the Skytrex. I want to pronounce that correctly. Skytrex.com. Okay, so that's the suggestion that he has. If I were building up armies for this this particular theater, this arena, as you said. Um, I would just go back to, like for me, I would go back to uh, Foundry. So Wargames Foundry, and I, I go through and look at what they have uh, to offer because they have, a, they have that's such a wide range, right? And I know there's other companies out there. I'm not just, this is just one of my, one of my many uh, companies of choice, but I'm going to give you an example using uh, Foundry, okay? So in Wargames Foundry, you got uh, the Afro-Caribbean Renegades, okay? And it's from... Uh, it's from the Pike and Shot era of the Sea Dogs. You got uh, Balthazar's Marauders, okay, from the Pirates of Swashbucklers. You have Christo's Raiders from the Pirates and Swashbucklers uh, series uh, at War Games Foundry. Uh, in the same series, Pirates and Swashbucklers, the Yellow Boys Renegades, um, French Revolution. The Armed Civilians, and that one is uh, MOB002, if you're, if you're keeping track. Um, also, Rampaging Mob from uh, French Revolution. Uh, Royal Navy, Roy, the Royal Navy Landing Party. Uh, if you need that one, it's B140. Uh, also, Royal Navy, the Marines, B142. Uh, Infantry Command from Early Napoleonic French. 
early Napoleonic French uh, infantry attacking. Uh, early Napoleonic French infantry attacking. There's uh, two versions. Uh, one is is ENF-003, uh, and the other one is, uh, excuse me, EFN-003 and 004. Uh, and then uh, from the Darkest Africa Ascaris series, um, heavily armed Ascaris. You know, so th- I would you I would that's how I would start. I would start with those that type of selection right there. You know, so I hope that helps you. Um, I put those on the uh, uh, Shot and Shield uh, podcast wargaming uh, group on uh, Facebook, so I got those on there as well. Just suggestions. You know, I, as I said, I'm not I'm not promoting saying, hey, look, you know, those those are the only figures. There's other figures out there. Okay. So that's just uh, just my suggestion as uh, Terry was uh, looking for more information. So there you go. I hope that helps you out there, my brother. So let me hit the last email here. This one is from Kurt in Berlin, Germany. And Kurt writes, I found your recitation of Haitian Revolution information to be boring. The information was good, but you sounded like you were bored. <laughs> Not every topic you get excited about should be in Central Asia. <laughs> Kurt, <laughs> I hear you. You know what? I went back. I was listening to it and I was like, oh, I sound so bored. I sound so I'm killing it. Oh, I hate it. You know, but look, I was focused on making sure that I communicated the information and I kind of got myself mired down in that. So I'm sorry about that. If I didn't sound so excited about it, I am. I was very, I was wicked excited about it. That's one. I always talk about stuff I'm really excited about here on the program. So, um, Kurt, I totally understand. Next time I bust out one of those, uh, I will totally make sure that I'm upbeat. Okay. <laughs> uh, coming up next, let me go ahead and do the movie review of Gunga Din. This is Shot and Shield. You don't think I, too, dream of peace? You don't think I, too, yearn to end this damn dirty job we call soldiering? Frankly, no. Hi, I'm famous podcaster and influencer, Sir Scott. And when I was young, my analyst said that I had an overactive imagination. I mean, he was a financial analyst, but he was still right, okay? Now, as a kid, I would always see my G.I. Joes capture tigers, excavate treasures, or elude dangerous snakes. And I would lose myself in Adventures of Tarzan and Flash Gordon and Conan. Old-time radio always had that magic that could transport you to different times and transport you to different worlds. And now I offer you a podcast filled exclusively with adventures in audio. Search and subscribe to Vintage Radio Adventures, found on most podcast apps. That's Vintage Radio Adventures. Shot and Shield. What are you looking at? It's time for Shot and Shield Movie Review. Continuing to listen to Shot and Shield, the Supercast. Now, I have uh, received uh, a ton of email and uh, all of them asking, why don't I do movie reviews for movies that everybody has seen? Why am I doing some oddball movies here and there? But why not go after the famous ones? Well, that's going to change today. (laughs) 
This episode's movie review is one of the most famous movies ever. It's for anyone who's never seen, by the way, by the way, this movie review is for anyone who has never seen this movie. Because if, if you haven't, then you've lived under a rock. It has been called one of the greatest adventure films in the history of cinema. I am speaking of the RKO 1939 classic, Gunga Din. Gunga Din! Gunga Din! Water. Gunga Din! Drink water! Gunga Din is about a native Indian water bearer who had always dreamt of joining the British Army. Gunga Din is played by the excellent Sam Jaffe. The movie also stars Victor McLaughlin, Cary Grant, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. as McChesney Cutter Ballantyne. Fellow sergeants with this sort of uh, three musketeers thing going on. You know what I'm talking about. All for one, one for all, that type of deal. I'm leaving the service. Leaving the service? That's right. I'm, uh, I'm getting married and I'm going in the tea business. Married? Tea business? Why are you mad if it... The premise of the movie is that in the 19th century, 19th century India, three British soldiers and a native water bearer accidentally stumble upon a secret mass revival of murderous cultists and are duty-bound to stop it before it can rampage across the land. You never saw one of these things before, did you? But growing daisies, isn't it? The cult our plucky adventurers stumble upon are called thugs or thuggies. The thugs are a religious sect who worship the god Kali. Thugs were the most fiendish band of killers that ever existed. There were at least 10,000 of them in India, and they murdered 30,000 people a year. This must be stamped out at all costs. And they operated as gangs of highway robbers. Their tactic was to join travelers and gain their confidence, which allowed them to surprise and strangle them with a handkerchief or a noose. They would rob and bury their victims. They are led by the Mad Guru, played by the fantastic Eduardo Cianelli. Rise and kill. Kill lest you be killed yourselves. Kill for the love of killing. Kill for the love of Kali. And in the end, the Sergeants Three and Gunga Din are captured. Gunga Din, although injured, grabs a trumpet, climbs up to the top of a temple, and blows his horn, warning the oncoming British column that they are about to be ambushed. Fighting ensues, but sadly, the brave Gunga Din is killed. The movie is based on Kipling's poem of the same name. Gunga Din and the characters of the sergeants, Cutter, Ballantyne, and McChesney, were based on privates Authoris, Mulvaney, and Leroyd from Kipling's Soldiers 3 short stories. Now, I have a few favorite scenes. The first fight scene with the sergeants 3 in a fight with soldiers from the Black Watch. So much fun. Another favorite scene is in the temple where Cutter sends Gunga Din to get help. And in order to draw the thuggy's attention away from Gunga Din's yeah, escape, he sings a song and announces that all of the, uh, the cultists are under arrest, right? Now, you're all under arrest. A whole bunch of you. And you too, and you know why. 
Her Majesty's very touchy about having a subject strangled. And finally, at the top of the temple, where our heroes have the Mad Guru as hostage, Edward Cianelli, he's so perfect here. And he's nuts, but also extremely smart when he talks about the smugness of the British. Mad. Mad. Hannibal was mad. Caesar was mad. And Napoleon surely was the maddest of the lot. Now, this is Shot and Shield, a wargaming podcast. So what can we get out of this movie to aid us in our wargaming? Well, first off, inspiration. I wanted to game the colonial period because of Gunga Din. 55 Days at Peking, Khartoum, and Zulu Dawn. Those four movies right there were the reason I wanted to start gaming the colonial period. Next, there are about six or seven scenarios that you can derive from this movie for gameplay. And finally, this is a terrain maker's dream. The valley, the mountains, the village. Easily created and amazing. Even though it's black and white, you still get a great emphasis of their of their uniforms as well. And you can kind of tell that it's tan and it's white and it's black and it's, you know, you can, you can tell all the different colors that are going on even though it's black and white. So much good comes from this movie for us that I have to give it five pith helmets on a five pith helmet scale. Excellent movie indeed. And if you're thinking of Wargaming Colonials, this is the first movie you have to see, bar none. If you don't see this movie first, you are nuts. You have to see this movie first before you do any type of Colonial Wargaming. So there you go. That is the Shot and Shield movie review for Gunga Din. So I'll meet him later on. At the place where he has gone, where it's always double drill and no canteen, he'll be squatting on the coals, giving drink to poor damned souls, and I'll get a swig in hell from Gunkadeen. Yes, Dean, 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 your Lazarusian leather, Gunkadeen. I belted you and flayed you. By the living God that made you. You're a better man than I am, Ganga Dean. This is Shot and Shield. I hear that conditions in your army are appalling. Well, I'm sorry, but those are my conditions, and you'll just have to accept them. Shot and Shield is on social media. There's the Twitter page, at Shot and Shield. Please follow. There's a Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group. It's open to all. Please join and post some of your amazing games, paint jobs, and creations. Finally, the email, shotandshield at gmail.com. Email me if you have a question or a thought or even a complaint that you'd like read and answered on the podcast. Shot and Shield is on social media. It's time to get pencil and paper ready. Get out your notebook. Get out your pen. Get out your pencil. Sharpen it. Be ready. It's time for Scenario Builder. Building better worlds. Today's scenario is called Gorilla. And you will definitely need a tape measure for this scenario. I designed the scenario for one to four players. You'll be able to divvy out responsibilities how you see fit. 
Now, as always, I use the Men Who Would Be Kings games rule set from Osprey, but you can adapt these scenarios uh, for any of the rules you like, any of the ones you use, any of the ones you appreciate. So it's They're adaptable. You just have to probably do a little math. All right. So let's start out with the forces you'll be using today in the scenario called Gorilla. The first force is called the Occupier Force. You're given 38 points. You can put together any force you see fit. No restrictions whatsoever because you're facing three guerrilla forces. Now, the breakdown for the guerrilla forces, you get 16 points each force. You got three forces, 16 points each, and you can put the force together however, you know, each force together however you see fit. The only restriction, no artillery. Okay, so there you go. That's the one restriction you have. Now, the objective, obviously, the objective for the occupier force is to eliminate all guerrilla action from the board, whereas the guerrillas have two objectives. The first is to inflict damage on the occupier force and to prevent the occupier force from controlling the game board. Let's say the guerrilla force must eliminate at least uh, 40% of the occupier force in order to achieve the first objective. Now, keep in mind that all three guerrilla forces can win or lose together. All right, so there you go. Now, to start the game, the Occupier Force starts out with its full contingent in the center of the board. I suggest that you use like a 6x4 table. I think a 4x4 table is too small. I think you need that 6x4 table. Uh, The Guerrilla Forces start out in three different locations on the board, which are determined by a dice roll. Get this. You roll five six-sided dice twice. The first roll is that many inches from the corner And the second roll is that many inches into the board. For example, I roll twice, I get an 18 on my first roll, and a 25 on my second roll. That's 18 inches from the corner of the board. All right, measure it out. Measure it out. Then 25 inches into the board. And you do this for each of the guerrilla forces. There's another facet here. As the guerrilla force, you are invisible until you encounter the occupier force. You're going to have to move on paper until that encounter. And in order for this to work, you got to be honest, man. You got to be honest. <laughs> and you got to be able to show that you're moving after the encounter occurs. So you got to be fair, right? So there you go. This episode's scenario builder entitled Gorilla, which, of course, you could find pinned on the Shot and Shield podcast wargaming group on Facebook. If you decide to play this, or any of the scenarios in Scenario Builder, please post and show us how it looked, what you did, how it played out. And you know what? I want to see game reports. I really, really do. So get on the game reports. This is Shot and Shield. Good luck against those elephants. So I'm going to get a little serious for a second. If you're like me and you're disturbed by what's going on in Ukraine, and you're thinking, what can I do? This happens a lot when the world is faced with tragedies like this. You and I have friends in Ukraine, fellow gamers, artists, sculptors, businesses that we've come to know over the years. And outside of wishing them well and hoping they are safe, there are ways you can help. For instance, UNICEF has set up a site to help children. Nova Ukraine helps with humanitarian aid. There is doctorswithoutborders.org, rescue.org, and ICRC.org, all of whom are helping people in Ukraine. The one which I most admire is World Central Kitchen, WCK.org. They've helped in Haiti, in the Middle East, in Asia, anywhere where people need food. 
and they're set up right now in Ukraine and around Ukraine to help. I'm not using this platform to ask you to help. I'm using this platform to provide you information if you decide you want to help. This is Shot and Shield. I'm waiting for an explanation. A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century war gaming. Looks bad in the newspapers and upset civilians at their breakfast. This is Shot and Shield. Thank you for continuing to listen to Shot and Shield, the Supercast, in this very special edition of the Supercast. Friend of the podcast, man of the people, the best-dressed man on the internet, Wargaming's own bon vivant, Claude Bailey. You like that, don't you? I love it. So, Claude, thank you for uh, coming on and helping me out with this today. My pleasure. So, I got this email, and I'm going to... I'll tell you, I'm, we're just getting right into it. And I got this email. I'm going to withhold the name and the location because I, I don't know how to feel about this subject at all. And I, I just, it's an oddball subject. When I read the email, it kind of shocked me because I never, it never occurred to me mm-hmm. um, that this stuff could, that either takes place or has take, taken place or will take place or could take place. But here's the email and it reads, Duke Scott, I and my war game group Love listening to your show. Thank you. Most of us do listen as we paint. So thank you. Thank you. I was wondering if you've ever bet on Wargaming. Now, that was the initial email. That was it. Just, just Oh, like wow. That. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So that, was, that was the initial email. Just that alone. I was wondering if you've ever bet on Wargaming. So all these things come to mind, you know, I'm thinking to myself, why is there like a line, you know, that in Vegas that I can go and, you know, put down some cash <laughs> on some more, you know, what are you talking about? You know, I, so I didn't understand, like, I kind of didn't understand the question. It, it seems like a very precise question, but kind of vague also. So mm-hmm. um, I replied to him and asked him uh, some questions since this is the first time I've ever heard of this gambling and a war gaming. What? Um, so I asked him uh, if he did. And how it takes place. And here's his reply. Scott, it's weird that you've never heard of that before because we've been doing it for years. We run it like other people run a poker night. We all pitch in five bucks and the winner gets the pot. We just used your new scenario scramble. Oh, cool. That you had on your Haitian episode. It's a lot of fun and kind of adds a little more to the action. Does that answer your question? Yes, it, it does answer my question. Kinda, but but, but Claude, how <laughs> I just so, so gambling in general. I'm not going to talk about the. I don't want to get into the moral pieces of gambling. No, I I don't think that's that that's not the point here. I just want to avoid yeah. that that part of the conversation because I think Absolutely. that uh, that could we could get mired down in all kinds of different objects. I'm talking about the uh, the idea, right? Specifically with war gaming, right? Yes. So, uh, you know, what surprises me is that he's surprised that we've never heard of it. 
<laughs> I never thought about that. I just does that make sense? Because yes, I've, I've, I've never. It, I mean, you and I are both of a, men, gentlemen of a certain age, right? Who have been, you know, pretty involved in wargaming uh, in one way or another for many, many years. Absolutely. And, so, and and obviously, we know dozens, if not hundreds, of people that are that, and I've never, ever, ever heard of it. Right. The dust of the surprise, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. You know, the the, the folks I've had on here that have have wargamed. Um, you'd think that at some time somebody would have said, "Yeah, so you know, me and my guys, you know, we were right. doing this, and you know, and I went out one hundred bucks." Yeah. Yeah. Like what? Oh. And then that would have prompted my head to go, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> And uh, it also, so, you know, it, I'm thinking also another issue with this, not issue, but another aspect of this is this presumes, I think, that you're playing multiplayer games. Right. Again, there's a lot of people that play one on one. It doesn't seem like that would be it would be like playing poker with one other person. I, I don't know. I, I guess I would like well, more you can details. play you can play blackjack with one other person. That's true. You know, if you and a buddy were playing a war game and you both accepted the rules, that's I think that's the other piece, too. Well, that's another thing. Yeah. How many people have you known in your past? I've known in my past that have argued a point in the rules. Ah. (laughs) And now you're talking arguing a point in the rules because there's money on the line. Exactly. Well, it's the definition of putting skin in the game. Right. And and let's face it, war game rules are notoriously complex. Yes. Even the so-called simple ones. Right. And there's so many nuances and so many, I mean, they're they're infinite amount of nuances. And Mm -hmm. I know when I've ever played war games, various different rule sets, there's a lot of leeway. Absolutely. Even even if, if with at a at a, con, uh, a convention with a professional game master or whatever, there's still a little wiggle room where where I think if money's involved, that's going to totally change the whole the dynamic, the whole fleet. Yeah, the dynamic yeah. exactly. Yeah, because I can see I can see this. Okay, we've all put we've all put five bucks in and we're playing a game. We've all agreed that the river that has to get crossed is a medium flow, <laughs> and I go to cross it and I roll a one instead of a ten. And my guys get swept away in the current and they're eaten by crocodiles. That's the nature of the, because we're dealing in dice, you know, even though strategies involved, ah, just it's, it kind of blows my mind. Cause even just talking about yeah, it, I, I held off, I held off thinking about this. Like I, uh, I have the email and I asked the question, but I held off thinking about this until we could do this. Like you and I, yeah. the questions would come just naturally instead of like a, a bunch of stage questions, because now I'm thinking to myself, well, their strategy in poker, you know, I mean, you just watch any James Bond movie and you know, he's all strategizing, counting cards, <laughs> you know, and there's, and there's a strategy in betting. It's like, you know, well, you know, I'm not going to take the town, so I'm going to raise you by, but you know, how does that, like, there's some, there's some like mechanics that I was kind of curious how that would work. No, I, I, I'm fa- yeah. I, I would love to know. I, I, I find it hard to believe that it's that simple, that, that, that his description is just, here's some money and whoever wins, it just seems like, but if they've been doing it for years, right? I, I would love to hear examples of when it went wrong, for example. Right. I think it's also implied in uh, this gentleman's email that, you know, him and his buddies have been doing this for years. Right. I think for years is the key because they're yes. all familiar with each other. Uh, nobody's, the, the stakes aren't so high that they're, that somebody's going to you know, go and bet the house. Right. You know, on. Hopefully not. Yeah. I would think that over the fact that. On, you know, on the sword and the plane. I would. Yeah. Can you imagine? Sorry, oh. honey, we have to move. I lost the house in a war game. <laughs> you what? Well, yeah, I, I thought my I thought my Indian troops would be a little stronger than they were. And I rolled a one. <laughs> Sorry, I guess uh, I guess we're moving back in you know, with your mom. Ooh, <laughs> you, you know another thing, honestly, too, and to me, this is kind of the elephant in the room. But wargaming is, 
I mean, think about it. So H.G. Wells, it's a very, at least in my perception of it, is it's a very gentlemanly pursuit. Right. If you really think about true gentlemen of a hundred years ago or more, um, gambling obviously was a big thing. I mean, I, you know, it was it was okay to lose lots of money gambling if you were a British officer, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, it was pretty common. Uh, horse racing, whist, bridge. Um, that's all they did. Well, not all they did, but a lot of them. It, I mean, there's the libraries full of books about officers losing money at cards, but, and, and on, and on horse racing, but there's something that I don't know. I don't know if slimy is the right word, but it's almost, and this is totally just my off the bat impression, but it's, it almost cheapens it for me personally. Yeah. I don't know. What, what do you think about that? I don't, I don't know. I, I think that goes back into that kind of moral dilemma. I don't know you if know? it's moral. I think, well, because, I, I think more it's like know, cultural and social. I don't know. Maybe it is moral. Okay. Well, let's, let me, let me, let me raise the stakes. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> You know, (laughs) of this conversation, because if you are, if you and your buddies are playing a war game, okay, and you're each putting down five on it and somebody wins, okay, fine. What's the next step? Well, the next step is taking it to, you're taking it to a, a, a war gaming convention in Vegas, you know, and now you don't just have, you just don't have that, uh, the group of players around the, around the table that are betting each other on who's going to win and who's going to lose. Um, but then what if you and I are watching that game and I look at you and I say, Hey, look, you know what? I think uh, this guy has the chance, you know, you give me some odds. Yep. Yeah. You know, I'll give you two to one odds that this guy with the British players is going to wipe out this guy with the, with the Maori players. Right. And then you, and then you, you, you then you involve, I mean, bookies, bookmakers. Right. And I mean, you imagine calling up your bookie and say, yeah, look, I'd like to place a hundred grand on, on Claude here. He has 54 millimeter figures and, uh, you know, he's taking on, um, you know, Joe and, and, and Joe has his 54 millimeter figures, but I think uh, Claude has it. So put, put a hundred thousand on Claude. Uh, it's really weird. It's over, you know, it's, a, it's you know, oh, what about this? And, you know, let's amp, amp it up again. Okay. You watch TV. How many poker shows do you see on TV? Too many. Too many, right? In my opinion. Yeah. So let's turn that around. What if, you know, I turn on Spike Network or if there's, if that's even around anymore, I turn on Spike and there's, you know, (laughs) there's Claude in a war game. Right. With you know three other players and and we're now I'm now I'm sitting at, t- at the TV watching you win money or lose money playing a video a, a war game. Now what about this? I, I'm I'm gonna amp it up again. You know you have these uh for football, the NFL and baseball. Oh yeah. You know you have these apps. I'm not I'm not. This isn't like an ad for an app. Okay, I'm just I'm just throwing these <laughs> up. But like FanDuel and all these other guys, you know. Those are the ones that come to mind because I watch sports. I watch football and every so other. How does that work? I don't know. I don't. I, I'm not. A, I'm not, I don't. It. I don't follow sports, so I don't. Well, they there's there's betting on who's going to win, or in in, in some the cases, games? yeah, in the, the actual games. games. Okay. Yeah, okay. And, and in the NFL and the and the MLB and the NHL, oh, sure. they're, all right. they're they're all embedded with these folks also, right? You know, and they they're getting a yeah. piece of the action, as it were. I'm you know? sure. And, oh yeah. And so uh, you know, if this if this player is going to get uh, two or three touchdowns, and this player is going to get this, you know, who says that, you know, in a war game, you can't make a side bet too. It's like, okay, well, I think uh, Claude's going to take the hill, you know, I'll put five bucks on the hill. You know, I, I don't know. It's just, it just seems to me that just that, that question alone, have you ever bet on war gaming? That does now, that's why I wanted to have that clarification because right. it opens up this whole kind of field. See, the, the, that's why I wanted to wait until we started talking because I now all of a sudden the, it's going to my mm-hmm. head. One of the problems that we have in this community is that not a lot of people are getting involved in it anymore. 
absolutely. That's that to me, and and everybody in the community would agree with you. Absolutely, right? Yeah, because I mean, we can. How many how many sons and daughters can we have? I mean, we can only have so many to grow the the grow the populace of wargaming. Absolutely. My daughter's like, what are you playing with toys for? You know, she's not going to get involved in that. Mm-hmm. My my brother's uh, children aren't going to get involved in it. They see it. And they're like, oh, that's cool. And then that's it. That's the end of it. They're on to their other things. They're on to their video games. They're on to all the other aspects Absolutely. Of, of life that have garnered their attention. And so the community isn't really growing. I would not no. say, I, I mean, I, I don't know. There, there, maybe there's some sage guy out there that's saying, no, 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 it's growing. It's just not growing at the faster pace as everything else. You add gambling to the mix. How fast do you think that sucker is going to grow? It, it, exactly. I, it might, it might definitely lead to some growth, but I don't know that it's that you wouldn't want that to be the base because I think you and I both got into wargaming for the same reason because we interest we're interested in history. Yes, and right? and military history and, right. and, and military also, history and also let's face it, um, toys or models, you know, right, right, and, and the, the the tactility of it, the three dimensionality of it. The video games aren't that way to me. I know a lot of right. most more people probably more people play video games than wargame. Let's face it, absolutely. And and, and I don't and, know that and there's gambling... fields. There's fields. Excuse me. I'm sorry. There's no, no. fields. Video game players. Some of them get treated like they're NFL players. There's conventions. Oh, yeah. There's, have there's these... like huge, there's tournaments. Right. With big money involved. Yes. There was a guy who Which... lived above me who did that. For a living? For a living. Because I never left this place and he came out to grab, throw out garbage one day. And I said, what do you do, dude? And he <laughs> says, oh, well, I play video games. Wow. I said, well, you play video games for a living? He goes, oh yeah, yeah. God bless you. Seriously, I would think it take it, it would take the fun out of it. I, I love well, wargaming, but I don't know and, if I'd want to wargame as professionally. And that's another thing. So I think back to the gambling thing, I, to me personally, I think that I, I don't know that I, I, I think it, it takes the fun out of it. I think it takes a lot of the fun out of it. It would for me anyway. I may, maybe I'm wrong. I'm not a gambler either. Some people yeah, are just gamblers. They'll gamble on anything. Right. <laughs> no, really? Seriously? Yeah, you know, no, I'm no, sure you're you, right. You know people like that. Yeah, we both I do know too. People like that. Mm-hmm. I, I've never been a gambler and I, but I've, you know, obviously been a war gamer and I, I think, I don't know. I think for me personally, and I'm going to say definitively that, that would take a lot of the fun out of it for me personally, I think. You don't think, okay, play devil's advocate. You don't think that if uh, you had a fiver in there that you would. I might try harder. Yeah, that's it. You know, all of a sudden become a little more serious about the actual game. Yeah. You know, because I mean, for me, this game is fun. If I lose lose, which I often do. Yeah. You know, okay, whatever. I move on with my life. You know, I don't mind losing. You know, I'm a human. I've lost my whole life. You think I'm going to start in wargaming? Right. <laughs> well, you know, another thing is many times when I've played war games, the, the game master, whoever is running the game will call it before all the turns have been played out or the objective will be some, a lot of, there's a lot of wiggle room, not wiggle room, but there's a lot of things that could go wrong right. between the beginning of the game and the end of the game. So it's not necessarily you're playing the game and the rules are set in stone and there's no variation and, you know, things happen that, that right. force you to change the rules, honestly. And, and so I don't, I can't see if money is involved and maybe maybe it's fine with a bunch of guys that have known each other for years and years. Right. And it's all, it's all fun. Like, you know, poker night with the guys really, it's a can of worms, Scott is what it is. I think think this whole subject. And that's the other thing too, is like just having this conversation right now, I was very kind of like, do we have this conversation? Is this like, is this that underlying undertone of these are the things we don't talk about? Right. Absolutely. I I don't know. 
I don't know because I'm not, uh, I don't believe that I'm embedded in the community like that where all no, of a sudden that's going to be in somebody's ear. Now there's a, there's plenty of people out there, plenty uh, of you listening who might think, oh yeah, we do this all the time or right. I can't believe you're talking about this because this is the one thing we don't want to do, you know, because we want it to be about the miniatures. We want it to be about the history. We want to be about the yeah tactics and strategy and the camaraderie. Mm -hmm. Those are the four things I think that uh, we would all agree that that's what uh, wargaming does for us as, 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 as human souls. Absolutely. Now you add, <laughs> now you add maybe a little, as you said, skin in the game, you know, you're throwing a couple of, a couple of bucks at the deal, just kind of like, you know, if it's friendly, I guess. Exactly. And you know, honestly, you and I, I'm sure you've had this experience too. There's always rule Nazis. Yes. That would seem, and nobody likes them, but there's always somebody who's, well, that's blah, 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 blah. You know, they, they can recite chapter and verse about the rules right. and the special specificity of the rules. And that that's just going to get worse if there's money involved. It, right. it seems to me, it's like, I don't know if you've ever played golf with somebody who can, I'm sure you have, we all have, yes. but who can yes. cite the PGA rules. Yes. And that, that really just, it sucks the fun out of it in such a big way. Yes. Um, I've come out there to hit the ball, right. hit it badly, try to get in the hole and I'm going to have a beer afterwards or during or during. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to get in the cart because I ain't walking. Right. And that's it. And this guy's like, well, you know, if you slice off to the thing, you're going to take a one ball. Like, Ugh. oh my God, killing me right now. Yeah. So well, I, I don't know. There's, again, there's so many, and who knows, maybe, maybe we'll be surprised. Maybe people will say, oh, I, we've been doing that for years. Yeah. And then nobody talked about it. I mean, it just seems odd to me. <laughs> like there's so much going through my melon at the same time. I'm almost speechless. Yeah. You know, because yep. just the idea now in um, this gentleman's email, he's reply to me. Remember, uh, let's see, we run it like other people run a poker night. We all pitch in five bucks and the winner gets the pot. Okay. So let's just take that there. Oh, and they, and, uh, we use the new scenario scramble. So the one thing I got, let's, I'm going to talk about this for just one second as an, an and, it, and I'll bring it back around the gambling. When I put together the scramble scenario, which is on the uh, Shot and Shield uh, Wargaming Podcast group site right now, you can take a look at it or you can listen to the last episode. The The idea is that everybody's starting from a corner and they have to capture three of the five, you know, pieces, whatever. It could be a tree line. A bridge. A, yeah, bridge or a village, you know, a hobo. Who knows? You know, <laughs> it doesn't matter. You know, you guys determine it. So if they played that particular game and there was four of them and they're always starting at a corner following that instruction i could see where okay well i've just captured three i have to hold them for five turns boom i'm done i've won everybody already agrees ahead of time that these are the rules and that's just the way it is and because it's a friendly deal five bucks is five bucks really gonna you know put us out so when i got that reply again we run it like other people run a poker night so i don't know how many poker nights you've been to i've been to a few maybe in my life yeah half a well we actually we used to do it a lot I, I lived in a fraternity house for four years so okay. we did it probably almost every week but I, I i'm not a big card player so it was pretty casual let's just put it that way right so you so there, there there was a beer and there was a cigar oh, yeah. and <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, and you you brought whatever you know. You, even if you played penny games, where say you could throw in a penny, yeah. throw in a penny, oh, I raise you another penny, I raise you another penny. I could see it. That to me makes sense in the mechanic. You already know each other, so that nobody's going to freak out, you know, because they lost five bucks or even a dollar or even a penny or whatever. Right. Then if you take it to the nth level where you're watching it on TV and gambling it through the apps and you know in Vegas and everything, I think then that makes it that puts it in a whole different kind of field well and i i, I hate to say this but just observing 
someone playing war games is kind of like watching paint dry. Okay. In, so in have opinion. you ever watched one of those poker shows? I have. I've watched one of those poker shows. No, I Briefly. I mean, soccer doesn't hold my interest. People love no, soccer. God, and neither. I'm so sorry for all my European and, and South uh, South American uh, war gaming pals. I don't understand soccer. I don't, I don't understand, understand sports. But anyway, that's a whole other. <laughs> well, soccer to me is like run up, run down, run up, run yeah. down, run up, run down. That's, Basketball golf's the same, is the same way. way. Yeah, golf's the same way for me. So, yeah. You know, <laughs> just alienated the majority of our listeners. I'm so sorry. Please don't, please don't stop listening. I, I decided I was going to sit down. I, I'd watched a poker, you know, one of these poker things. I think it was on W, uh, it was on TNT, the TV station. And I'm watching and I'm watching, I'm just thinking to myself, what is going on? What is going on? And then you had a couple, you had a couple of guys talking, an announcer and a, and a, a specialist or a, an expert. And, oh, I think he's going to pull out the ace. Oh, he oh, has God. the ace. He has the ace. And, you know, and, and they, they're not allowed to wear glasses that have that's right know, shiny. And, you know, so they're going through all the rules and, and I'm watching. And I, I found myself like after an hour and a half, it was like, Ooh. are they going to do anything? Like, oh, Okay, and this guy won it at the attempt. Oh, yay! Well, and you know, it's and, funny. And, and so, watching it, but but I wasn't all that entertained. They wouldn't have it on TV if it wasn't to some entertain sort of for somebody. And I think I think again, when money's involved, that's when it becomes interesting to some people, regardless of what it is. Yeah. Um, especially something like that. You can't tell if someone's playing a card game. You you don't know what they're thinking. You don't know. And the, I mean, honestly, the play by play on a on a poker game. Come on. <laughs> I know. I know. Can I tell you, I played, I was at a casino once, well, a few times, but I, I got into a blackjack game once. This is when I was in, blackjack is different, but anyway, go ahead. This was when I was in radio. Okay. And I was hosting some event at, um, the, uh, it was in New York. It was at the Oneida, you know, casino. I was hosting some event that they had in their showroom and I was on a break and I went down and they gave me like, uh, they gave me like 20 bucks to spend, you know, a couple of like 20 buck chips. Mm-hmm. And so I sat down at blackjack because I, I do like the blackjack. I sat down and there was a bunch of guys with me and they, they were sitting there and I don't care. Like, I don't care if I win or lose. It's not my money. Right. You know, I looked and I had a 20 and I was like, all right, so I was going to stay and I hit, I I made the wrong signal. Oh yeah. Stay. So it's like at an auction. Be careful. Right. I did the tap instead of the, the cut, you know, and the, the other four players looked at me like, no, you, you want to do that? What are you doing? You're talking, what you're, you're an idiot. You know, I'm one of those guys that's like, no, that's what I meant to do. That's what I meant to do. Yeah. What are you talking oh, yeah, about? That's totally. what I meant to do. Right. <laughs> and the, the dealer's looking at me like, you're an idiot. Right. You are such an idiot. And they're all looking at me like I'm an idiot. So <laughs> you know what happened? I got an ace. Oh, made it 21. The, the, the table blew up like, whoa. Yeah. The, and the, the, the dealer cut out. He's like, right, that's I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> he cut. He, I got I, I got I, he gave me like an extra chip for, for, for that. And they, he switched tables because it's like, OK, this guy knows something. This is right. weird. I can't believe this happened, you know, and I couldn't believe it happened. And I, I acted like it's not a big deal. Like, yeah. I, you know what you're doing. You're a pro. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you guys doubted me. Look at this now, you know? <laughs> and in my head, I'm thinking to myself, Oh my God, I can't believe I just did that. And these guys are like, Oh my God, how'd you do that? Or like, more like, I wish I put more money on that. <laughs> right. I'm imagining what the play by play would have been like. 
Well, Scott has a 20. And, well, I think he should probably stay there, you know, Trent. Well, I don't know there, Rory. I think uh, he should uh, He should probably stay. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he's going to stay. Oh, he just tapped. Why did he just tap? Oh, my God. He just tapped. He just tapped. Oh, that's such a bad move. He's such an amateur right now. Oh, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, so the ratings go up and everybody's like, oh, look at this guy. So that I can see. But let's go bring it back in Wargaming. Where is the surprise? Where's the surprise that will happen during a war game? What have you ever been in a situation wargaming, right? Where a player, the players start making moves, and all of a sudden, boom! There's some monster surprise. I I can't I can't think of all the war games I played. I cannot. No, me neither. It doesn't unless unless there's something built into the rules, which so it's not a surprise. um, Where you know someone comes on the board halfway through the game, you know it. At turn six, you can add whatever uh, a battalion of cavalry mm-hmm. on the board, or other. Th- I mean, and that's not a surprise because it's all in the rules. Yeah, it's planned, right? So, yeah, I don't see. I don't know. And again, back to the. It has to be a multiplayer game. Yes, I don't think it can be just two players. I mean, it could no. be. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a really interesting thing, and I wonder what. Um, We've got to get this guy on. We can ask him more questions. I, I'm dying to know the, the, the details, you know, the mechanics you know, of it. I, I I don't know what kind of response he might get. Like his, like the other players in his group, are they going to be like, dude, you out of this, man? You know, or are they going to be like, yeah, all right. Now we got some, you know, or is there convention, you know, because the, the a lot of these towns are, you know, like here in near Orlando, there's a lot of war gamers here. I'll just use a generic name. Jack said this, then all his, all these people that he's gamed with are going to be like, Jack, why are you doing this? Yeah. Or are they going to be like, Hey, look, we want to amp it up or let's say, well, let's go ahead and get a convention put together for the, you know, I don't want to start. Like I want to, I want to spend time on the, on the subject matter and not necessarily the person. And I thought about, I did think about asking this gentleman to join me, but again, then it would put him in a spotlight that yeah no i don't think in. i no I, I agree with you i think we should open it up on facebook honestly i think on social media i think yeah. it would be interesting to see what people's response is yeah you know what i'll do a, i'll put a, i'll put a question in the uh in the facebook group and then i got to, on the twitter i'll put something up there too um i'll pin it that way people have a chance to really kind of jump in there what's your exposure on twitter is it do you have a lot of followers I, I don't do Twitter, so I don't know. Uh, yeah, actually, you know, I mean, a lot. I mean, you get a, you know, what's 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 a lot? You know, that's well, the I'm thing. Is like, like in, in comparison I mean, for me, with Facebook, for example, uh, it's about the same. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it's different people. Interesting. Well, you I know? think different people use different platforms. That that would actually yeah. make sense to me. Yeah. Like my huh. my my wife has tried to get me to go on and do um do the TikTok. Yeah. And I'm or Instagram. Know, Instagram is a big one. You know, I was on Instagram for a while. I, I stopped. It just, yeah, I don't, I, I don't understand it. I don't and, either. <laughs> I don't understand the TikTok either. It's like, uh, maybe I, sh- you know, I can't imagine doing a TikTok for wargaming. It's going to be me <laughs> and uh, some of my miniatures. And we're going to be dancing to like Lady Gaga. Is that what the, woo. Hey, yeah. Look, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry, me, I, I just did a little dance there. This is radio. <laughs> I always forget. No, 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 it's all right. Oh my god, that's funny. So yeah, no, I, I get why you, you didn't. You, we wouldn't want to have. We wouldn't want to do that. Have him on, but I, 
But yeah. I'm just, I'm just fascinated. I just would like to know more details. Like, because I can't, yeah, I just, there's something about it that honestly, I, I don't, I don't think I would do that. I personally, I don't. Yeah. I don't think I, I can't, I can't imagine myself doing that. I mean, if I had uh if I had a group of my regular buddies and everything, and we did that, I probably wouldn't be opposed to it. Yeah. I mean, you know, but at the same time, you know, for the community itself, I'm, I, I don't know, like it just, just opens so many doors at the same time. Are there doors you want to open? Exactly. And again, I'm not, I don't, I'm setting aside the moral piece of it altogether. Yeah. Cause obviously, you know, the, the world is the way the world is, but <laughs> uh, you know, I can't imagine putting a fiver down and saying, okay, well, look, I expect, you know, Joe to win because he has elite troops. And that's my, that's my thought process. And then he ends up losing. And I'm going to be looking at Joe. Really? You had elite troops, bro. You just cost me five bucks. Right. Well, I and I, you know, if, if the rules are good and we've all obviously, you know, we have certain rule sets that we like and certain ones that we don't. And if the rules are good, in my experience, unless there's some weird thing going on where the, the generally speaking, the scenarios, the, the games generally turn out more or less accurate, more or less to reflect the history. Right, right. And so, so occasionally there'll be a surprise, but um, you can kind of tell, I would say, again, depending on the game, but you, you, there's a point in the game where you can tell who's going to win and who's going to lose. And it's usually, it's again, th- th- there's a huge lack of surprise here, I think. Maybe I'm wrong, but... Uh, well, let's, uh, let's take a second. Let's take a timeout. Okay. And then um, when we come back, let's examine that right there. The surprise? Yeah. Yes. Because I have a few, there, there's a few things that spring to mind. Cool. All right. This is Shot and Shield. Hi ho, tip, tip, from Bernard, your uncle. Considering an online pharmacy? Explore Be Safe RX to find useful information and resources to help you purchase medicines safely online. A safe online pharmacy requires a doctor's prescription, has an address in the United States, has a licensed pharmacist, and is licensed by a state pharmacy board. It's best to stay away from online pharmacies that don't meet these criteria. Discover more helpful tips and resources at BeSafeRx. Go to fda.gov slash BeSafeRx. This is Shot and Shield. It's going to hurt you a lot more than it will me, I'm happy to say. A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. Discipline makes the strength of armies. Shot and Shield. Uh, continuing on with this uh, special edition of Shot and Shield, uh, Claude Bailey, Wargaming's bon vivant and friend of That's the podcast, joins, uh, joins me today to, we're talking about the subject of gambling. And before we uh, took a little time out, um, we were talking about point of how to actually create a game for that. I mean, because that, that's, where, that's where our conversation was going. War games in general, not just war games, but, uh, but history in general, is usually you never really have even sides, right? Very true. Okay, so... It, um, it, I don't know. I mean, well, it depends. That's, that's a whole different subject, but that's an interesting, an interesting comment. Um, like, I, I, I think I would... When you say even, I guess, what, what define that? Okay, well, uh, if I'm going to play, if I'm going to gamble on a game, 
And let's say it's a poker game or a card game. Everybody needs the same chance to get the same cards. Okay. Okay. Even odds. Okay. Okay. So if I, if I'm, if I'm hosting a game or I'm having a game and my buddies, let's see all, you know, you and me and a couple other guys, we're all, we're all around and we're all putting in five bucks. It depends on the rule system. Okay. Like the, the rule system I love, you know, the, the men who wouldn't be Kings, they have a point system. Let's just put it out there too. I mean, everybody that's listening knows, but almost all war game rule sets have a point system. Okay. Do they? I, I, that I don't know. Okay. In some way. I mean, I wouldn't, maybe they don't call it that, but yeah. Or in other words, a system whereby you have, you're able to determine what value certain troops have. I mean, that's just standard. So, but you'd want even, you'd want even the sides to be equal. Right. In their, in their strength. Correct. Or their power. Because if you have, if you have one that's, that's has more power than the other, then what's the point of betting? Because this one's just going to roll over. And right. in, in history, if you look at some, you know, not all battles, but some of them, there are some battles that are just the, the, the sides are wicked and even. Oh, yeah. You know, Thermopolis, you know, Thermopylae. <laughs> Spartans, ther, uh, excuse me, Thermopylae. It's okay. <laughs> no, 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 correct me. You know, the, uh, but, you know, I mean, 300 against the whole Persian. There's numerous examples of that but then yeah anyway so let's i didn't mean to go off on a tangent there but yeah so yes go go for it sorry man <laughs> do you have even points or does everybody if you're going to do like a colonial war game you get 20 infantry you get five cavalry you get two guns and we don't do morale because morale some games, some rule sets don't have morale i actually like playing with no morale frankly. yeah me too just because you know it's a, everybody's a hero we're doing this. Then it becomes, you know, what about the game board? You know, I mean, how many obstacles, you know, if you have, if you have Afghans who are good, who are ready to go to ground and who know the, then is that going to be, it's just, there's so many variables. Like it, it blows my mind. It's almost like you'd have to do ancients only and everybody gets 200 spearmen, gets five chariots and 500 archers. And there you go. That's your side. It's on flat land, which is a really boring if that's all you do that just doesn't seem like it would be very much fun right but if you're gambling exactly then that's a different deal so i wonder again i i'm dying to know how they do that because if i if, for example if i went into playing a poker game with only 30 cards or like how do i explain that better it just there's no it, if i'm if money is involved you want it to be fair you want it to right. start off you want to start off at the same level exactly but so how does that work? I mean, I, I, I just, I right. can't see how that could work. It doesn't, the mechanics of it don't make sense to me. I'm sure there, I'm sure there's mechanic for fairness. There would have to or be. Or maybe they don't care. Or maybe. <laughs> no, honestly. No, maybe, no, maybe you're right. Just like, I mean, okay, because well, the comment, the comment in the email is. Right. My buddies and I, it's, it's a friendly, it's a friendly. Yeah. Deal. The, the overall scope though, is, is that something that just somebody listening to us right now is going to be like idea we're going to gamble that exactly. but that hasn't been thought of already well that's another thing i can't i don't understand why this is such a big surprise to us because it is so either people have been doing this all along or there's some reason that we're not figuring out here yet why why it hasn't been done all along because people gamble on everything like we were talking about everything yes and so they why gamble is on the, a- they they gamble on a baby being born, if it's going to be a boy exactly. or girl, without it. you know, I mean, seriously. Yeah. Yes. If this has been, yeah, exactly. If this has been going on for, for as long as, as time, you know, is this, is this HG, HG, right. HG Wells. 
right? Yeah. It had the first wargaming thing. I mean, essentially, yeah. Okay, so yeah. essentially, you know, well, was it book two? And nobody never, he never got it published because he passed away. He was like, oh, they never published book two. Book two was how to gamble on it. Well, it makes me want to get that book out. And I don't think he mentions anything in there about a, a wager, about a friendly wager. Right. Or, I mean, I haven't read it in a few years, but I've got a copy. I mean, I, I maybe he does. And we're missing this. I, I don't know. Does that, we can ask the audience, you know, I mean. Yeah, because I, I've never seen it in any rule book I've ever me read. Neither. And I would think when I first started, I would think that the the people I started with or the guys I started with would have said, oh, yeah, by the way, you're going to earn some money doing this, too. Here, we're all putting down five. And then, then you exactly. know, they take the, the kid to school and steal all my money because I, I always lose anyway. Like, Me too. Oh, bring, bring, bring in Scott. He sucks. <laughs> you know, we love to have Scott come to play. We'll take all his it's money. Like, it's like dodgeball. Well, I, I maybe I don't think we answered any questions, but I think we we posed so many questions that everybody's going to kind of like, scratch their head and look at their phone or their, their podcast or their computer. And they're going to be like, you guys suck. Cause how dare you even bring it up? Or you guys didn't know this is going on. You more. Yeah. It's, it's gotta be one or the other. Right. I would, I would think again, I don't never even thought about it for some reason. So war gaming, war gaming, let's say has started, you know, recreational war gaming somewhere yeah, around 1880 good, good. or 1885 well the germans started doing it not recreationally professionally like the kriegspiel probably in the 1860s okay 1870s i mean they basically just you know they they war gamed um on a you know a sand table or whatever and just the general otto, von, the general bismarck, otto yeah, von bismarck, bismarck was yeah. standing there and he looks exactly. at mulkey and mulkey goes i, I bet you five dollars I well, that wouldn't surprise me either. Kronos or whatever they are, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's totally like, take that hill. And Otto's like, oh. Well, and I, I mean, if, if there was money on that, you know, think about it. How, how, how do you uh, account for the Schlieffen plan or the Schlieffen plan? I mean, I don't know. There's so many, <laughs> right. so many variables. Right. Exactly. I don't know. We'll have to put it. You know what? Here's what, yeah, this is, this is exactly what you're, what we're going to do. Okay. So I'm going to put it on the, uh, um, put the question on the uh, Shot and Shield uh, Wargaming Podcast group. Excellent idea. Um, I'll pin it to the Twitter at Shot and Shield. Claude, if you'd like, in, in some of your uh, the stuff that you you manage the 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 um, the Facebook groups you manage, if you want to put it up there for the conversation. Sure. Yeah, I'm curious now. Very curious. Yeah, see, because uh, you know, I want to kind of open it up because I don't want to make I want to make sure that we're not preaching to the choir type of deal where it's just like. You know, us well, we'll, I, we'll find people. out. I'm, I think it's going to be, I think it's almost, um, I think it's, I think it's going to be kind of controversial. I, I mean, maybe again, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just something that everybody's done for a long time and no one ever talks about it. Right. But I find that really hard to believe. I agree. Cause I think it would have been brought up. To, I think it would have brought, been brought up already. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, you know what? Maybe there's other podcasts out there who have done this already and already had this conversation and I, I just didn't hear about it. I've never that seen it. Be. I've never. I, I, I think, I don't think so, man. I think this is your, I think this is your, you're exposing this. Oh, great. So I'm the Woodward and Bernstein of <laughs> Wargaming. Thanks. That's not really what I wanted to do. I just, well, who knows? We'll know. let's see. I mean, I'm, I'm dying to know, man. Actually, I am too. I, I'm kind of curious myself. And if the first response is, we've been doing this for years, you guys are behind the times. And every, every comment after that is like, what, are you guys just coming out of this rock? Right. 
You know, where, where's what Seriously. rock have you been under? I'm going to be like, oh, I guess I've been under this rock. Maybe it's something that, you know, maybe it's a big uh, secret. Like maybe the conventions, there's like, you know, bookies <laughs> and who knows? <laughs> there's a back room of the Marriott. Exactly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the smoke filled room. Exactly. Just, everybody's in there betting. They're watching through like a, a they're watching the uh, wargaming uh, convention through a single a single view mirror, mirror. You know, and they're, and they're betting. <laughs> I see the guy on table 154 is getting ready to take the hill. I say two to one. He fails. Put a hundred grand on it. Who knows, man? I mean, so much other, so much more effort. People put so much effort into this hobby that I, it, it will not surprise me if this is some weird unspoken thing that we just, we're just, you know, we weren't paying attention. And that, that, I think that's it. It's just, we're not paying attention because I think it's just unfathomable. So when I saw that, I think that's what kind of blew my mind at this age too. I know. And I'm a, and I, and I'm a skeptic, you know, you know. <laughs> you know, it's like, I question everything, you know, the one thing I didn't question is something like this. So that's. Well, and for whatever reason, maybe it's because I'm sitting here, but I think I'm, I'm inspired to paint some uh, figures this morning now or this afternoon. That's a good, you know what, that's, we're going to, we're going to call you. it a day on the okay. podcast uh, on this uh, edition of shot and shield uh, because we're both going to go paint. Yes. Yes. You have Don't watch uh, the West wing. Don't watch the West wing. you got to paint your soldiers instead. <laughs> I was, t- I was telling Claude here uh, while we were on the break that I've, I'm, I've been binging the West wing. I, I don't, I just started, <laughs> I've seen a couple episodes and then I said, Oh, well, I might as well sit down and watch it. Bam. Now I'm stuck and I can't get away from it. I can't get away. My every, Every break I have where I'm like tired from work, I sit down and I say, okay, well, let's watch two episodes. All right, I got two more. All right, I said, oh, he was shot. Oh, my God. You know, oh, oh, what are they going to do about the MS? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know, it's a great show. Yeah, absolutely. I, just, I haven't watched it in like 20 years, but I just, I get, there's some shows I just get riveted by. This, uh, The Crown, I was just like all riveted. Ooh, Crown is good. It's a really good it was show. Very good. I'm going to do it. Today, you're painting. What are you painting? What's the, what's the, what's the ones that you use held up? You, you can't see this in the, in the I think the, I'm going to change the audio portion, but I've got two of these guys, but I think I'm going to change their outfits. Okay. Well describe what you got going on there. What's the, I've what's got a Bengal Lancer. He's got a red tunic, which usually probably means he's either 12th cavalry or the governor general's bodyguard, but most, almost all Lancer Indian Lancer regiments wore blue Curtis. Okay. So I think I'm going to give him and his buddy, uh, I've got two of these. So I'm going to, I'm going to give them both. I'm going to change their uniforms, just switch it up a little. And that's a 54 it was, it was unusual. It was unusual for the Indian cavalry to wear red kurtas. Usually most cavalry in the British army wears blue. Okay. That's just now what's it. And then that figure was, what, what was the name of the figure? What was the uh, Del company? Prado. Del Prado. Yeah. 54 millimeter. It's metal. Yeah. It's actually, they're honestly, they're probably, I, I would, they're probably considered 60 millimeter. They're a little bit bigger. And so, my, uh, let's see, my, my task today is I'm finally going to sit down and work on my Kashkari, uh, war dogs yes. war team. So for 1860 Russian incursion into the central Asia. So I'm going to finally, I got the dogs, I got the cages, I got the figures. Just do it, man. Paints, I'm going to sit down. And I'm just going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the dog out going to feed them the cat and the dog. Claude, I appreciate you coming on. Always a pleasure, man. I really appreciate Talking. it talking to me uh, about this subject. I've been joined by friend of the podcast, uh, Wargaming. I, I, I've coined you this, Wargaming's Bon Vivant. 
Claude Bailey, and we can uh, we can continue this conversation on Facebook at the Shot and Shield Wargaming Podcast Group or on Twitter at Shot and Shield. Claude, thank you. My pleasure, man. Thank you. Hey, what the blazes is this? A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. All right, Marines. Nice punch. This is Shot and Shield. And shield. From the land of the audio to the world of the visual, the Shot and Shield podcast is on YouTube. I use YouTube for supplementary information, such as watch-along videos, documentaries of interest, movies that I find that uh, best represent colonial or 19th century inspirations or gaming, and eventually video from interviews that I've uh, already done and that you've heard on the podcast. Just search out, in parentheses, Shot and Shield. You got to put the parentheses in there, parentheses, Shot and Shield, and parentheses, and you'll find it on the YouTube. There's also a link on the podcast info page. So check it out and subscribe to Shot and Shield on YouTube. And the Lord spake, saying, Shalt thou count to three? No more, no less. Three shall be the number thou shalt count, and the number of the counting shall be three. Four shalt thou not count, neither count thou two, excepting that thou then proceed to three. It is time for the top five reveal. Five is right up. In the last episode, I was asked why I don't cover the American Civil War, since it's the most popular wargaming period. <laughs> if you'd like to hear my answer, I will refer you back to the previous Shot and Shield episode. However, I thought I would throw out the question to you, the Shot and Shield faithful, to see what you thought. So the question was, what is the most popular theater to game? Easy, right? <laughs> Not as easy as you thought. Anyway, here are the results. Number five, Modern Warfare, which I assume is anything from like 1975 to now. Number four, Ancients. And this encompasses uh, biblical city-states of Mesopotamia, Egypt, etc. Number three, we got a tie, WW2 and American Civil War, which is interesting because, you know, both of those, I would assume, are the most popular historical war gamings, you know, periods ever, right? Number two, Napoleonics. I could buy that. Very popular, especially for our European friends. And the number one most popular theater to game, as voted on by you, the Shot and Shield listener. Colonial, 1870 to 1920. Now, I, I say this, I'm laughing because I didn't think about this when I put the question up, okay? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't consider it at all, but you're, you're all kind of prejudiced, man. <laughs> this is a 19th century and colonial wargaming podcast. Of course it should be number one. <laughs> so I guess I shouldn't be surprised, right? All right. So look, here's what we're going to do for the next poll. I'm going to veer off topic just a little bit because I'm curious to hear what you have to say and what you think about the earlier discussion with Claude Bailey, Wargaming's Bon Vivant, and Wargaming in Gambling. So if you go to Twitter at Shot and Shield or you go to the Shot and Shield podcast Wargaming group on Facebook, you will see the survey related to gambling in Wargaming and then listen to the next Supercast for the results. 
Still ahead, it's time to dig into the archives for another old-time radio inspirational classic. Shot and Shield, a podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. This is Shot and Shield. Shot and Shield is on social media. There's the Twitter page, at Shot and Shield. Please follow. There's a Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group. It's open to all. Please join and post some of your amazing games, paint jobs, and creations. Finally, the email, shotandshield at gmail.com. Email me if you have a question or a thought or even a complaint that you'd like read and answered on the podcast. Shot and Shield is on social media. This is Shot and Shield. I hear that conditions in your army are appalling. Well, I'm sorry, but those are my conditions and you'll just have to accept them. Today, yours truly, the Lord Scott, your humble servant, dug into the old-time radio archives and emerged with not one, but two presentations. They're both from 1939 and the show Lives of Great Men. In keeping in with the theme of 19th century, the two historical figures are Kipling and Tolstoy. Let's start with Leo Tolstoy. The National Broadcasting Company presents Lives of Great Men, a new series on great leaders in human progress presented by Dr. Edward Howard Griggs, distinguished lecturer, critic, and author of The Soul of Democracy, and many other books. In his talks, Dr. Griggs is building a story of civilization based on outstanding characters through the ages and how each one influences his own and future times. This evening, Dr. Griggs will discuss Tolstoy, Moral Leadership in Mysterious Russia. We present Edward Howard Griggs. My friends, Tolstoy was a great, bizarre character from the most puzzling background of the modern world, characteristic of his people in the first half of his life, but in the latter half, rising to a high social and spiritual gospel. When his death occurred in November 1910, under those pathetic circumstances, the old man going out alone to die apart in a kind of last futile protest against a society he could not accept, there followed the flood of articles like the buzzing of flies over a dead lion. As time passes, the lion is dust, and the flies are still. Perhaps now we may see what Tolstoy was, with the value of his message for our disturbed time. Russia, with striking contradictions, has been a mystery to the rest of the world. A land of vast and benumbing gloom, she developed a fine flower of culture. Continuing into modern times as czarist autocracy, she reacted to extreme communist revolution. Her people, however, never speak of their country as part of Europe. They say Europe and Russia, with the sense that she broods apart with a unique destiny. One cause of the paradox is the land itself, rolling steps under a gray sky with short, quick-passing summer and long, desolate winter time. More important is the race, with its Celtic-like emotionalism showing extremes of passion, somber and careless. Opposite this in the Slav is a dumb oriental resistant quality, which made it possible for Russia to push forward her czarist imperialism, and when the waves rolled up from without, draw back, waiting a decade 
a century if need be, only to push forward again. Such a people can be defeated, but not conquered. Still more significant is the way Russia took on the garment of civilization. Wakening late from her barbaric sleep, to reach out and take over the culture elaborated in Western Europe. In such a case, the stimuli of civilization suddenly release the biological energies accumulated under a thousand years of barbarism. Whatever the more primitive people borrows is thus carried to extreme expression, and that is what happened in every phase of Russian life. It is long, however, before the civilization thus lifted over can sift down to the mass of the people, Thus, in the last phase of Tsarist Russia, while the aristocrats and intellectuals represented the extreme of Occidental culture, the millions of Russian peasants remained in the semi-barbaric sleep that had marked them for a thousand years. The chasm between high and low, cultivated and ignorant, was more terrible and unbridgeable than elsewhere in the modern world. This made possible the revolution and present Russian situation. Such a mother will bear strange children, and the school of Russian novelists at the close of the 19th century is but one of the many bizarre births from the breast of that sphinx mother. Tolstoy, head of that school, was Russian of the Russians. Nothing could be more characteristic of his people than the first half of his life, though his conclusion is in contradiction. Born in 1828 of noble family, his boyhood was on the estates out from Moscow. His contact with the common people was only as little master in relation to the serfs. He attended the universities of Kazan and Moscow, being interested particularly in science and philosophy. Becoming an army officer, he advanced to high position, served through the Crimean War, and was in command of a portion of the Russian army at the storming of Sebastopol. Sickened by the bloodshed he had witnessed in which he had taken part, Tolstoy resigned his commission to go to St. Petersburg and join the literary circle there. Quickly, he became the head of the remarkable group of novelists and poets of the time. He traveled somewhat in Western Europe, but carried the problems of his Russian world and saw chiefly what bore upon them. At 34, Tolstoy married and went to live on his estates out from Moscow. The serfs had been freed two years before and he devoted himself to the problems this brought upon every Russian proprietor. In the decade following his marriage, his greatest novels, War and Peace and Anna Karenina, were written. Suddenly in middle age, his life was transformed, converted in literal sense, turned round about and made to face the other way. We find him repudiating his great novels, wishing he had not written them, refusing pay for his writings and dedicating sums received to social causes desiring to give up all his property and withheld only by the vigorous protest of wife and children, wearing the Russian peasant dress and working part of each day with his own hands. Thus, for the remaining 30 years of his life, Tolstoy lived to teach, preach, and make prevail a spiritual and social gospel. Full as his life is of romantic incident, the true history of the man is the record of his thinking, centering on the transformation Fortunately, all his writings reveal that deeper story. His great novels contain chapters of his life, while childhood, boyhood, and youth, and the stories of a Russian proprietor are slightly veiled autobiography. Further, my religion and my confession are entirely personal. The last was written to tell the story of the spiritual awakening, but as that is the center of Tolstoy's life that interprets the whole, his confession is the most illuminating spiritual autobiography. He begins by telling that when a lad of eleven, 
he learned from a schoolmate that God did not exist. He grew up to manhood in a skepticism both religious and moral, characterizing his class at that time. Entering the army, he experienced all the vices that accompany professional militarism. Of his period of reckless living, Tolstoy says, I put men to death in war. I fought duels to slay others. I lost at cards, wasted my substance wrung from the sweat of my peasants, punished the latter cruelly, rioted with loose women, and deceived men. Such a man joined the literary circle in St. Petersburg. There he thought he was teaching something, but knew nothing to teach. Imagined he was living for the progress of the species, while really living for his own ease and luxury. After his marriage, his aim became the welfare of family and dependents. Suddenly the ground seemed to go from under him. He found such questions as these running through his mind. I now own so many thousand acres of land in the government of Samara. What then? Or suppose I could attain all my aims. What then? Would it mean anything? The hollow echo of his question was the only answer. He fell into abject despair, caught himself taking down a rope in his study lest he hang himself, hiding away his revolver to avoid taking an easy way out. This was not the picturesque pessimism of youth, sentimentally pleased with its own melancholy. This is a middle-aged man, happily married, rich and famous, suddenly finding the cup of life bitter and unable to drink from it. He tells his suffering by narrating a folk story of a traveler lost in the steppes who turned to see a wild beast pursuing him. He ran till he came to a well down which he sought to climb, but below saw a dragon with yawning mouth waiting to devour him. So he held to the branch of a wild plant growing from the well wall. As he clung with failing strength, two mice came, one white, one black, to gnaw at the branch. He knew it would soon break, dropping him into the dragon's mouth, but with a dumb curiosity of despair, looked about him and saw two drops of honey on a leaf of the wild plant, stretched out his tongue and licked them. Tolstoy says that was my condition. Pursued, does he mean, by the unanswered enigma of life, clinging to the frail branch of life with the dragon of death waiting to receive him, and the two mice, black and white, does he mean night and day, gnawing in quick succession at the branch by which we cling? He adds, I too had my two drops of honey, my family and my writings, but these now palled on his tongue. He turned to the studies of his college days, but found no answer in science and philosophy. He then examined those of his social class and found four attitudes. The first group of some men and most women was unaware that there was any problem. The second, recognizing the futility of life, adopted the Epicurean solution, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. The third of strong men took the way of stoic suicide. The fourth group, equally aware of the vanity of existence, being weak, merely drifted. And Tolstoy adds, to this last group, I myself belonged. He is not fair to himself in the concluding statement, since it was not weak drifting that kept him from suicide, but a growing recognition that while those of his social set were so sure life was meaningless, the unnumbered millions of Russian peasants had gone on for generations in the assured conviction that life had infinite and eternal meaning. Increasingly, it seemed well before he went out to find how all those people could be so mistaken. In the face of the common people, he found two basic elements. They believed they were here not for their own pleasure, but to do God's will and they should live not for themselves, but for others. Whence came these? You know, 
the two commandments that Jesus said gathered up the law and the prophets, to love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Through the common faith, Tolstoy thus discovered the teaching of Jesus. As he studied it, he became convinced that Jesus taught a gospel of sharing all things and of complete non-resistance to evil, and so sought to live it, remaining to the end opposed to the entire commercial, police, and military system of society. Whatever view we take of Tolstoy's interpretation of Christ's teaching, we must recognize that, like St. Francis, he was one of the few entirely literal Christians seeking to live in conduct what they hold to be their chosen master's teaching. So he found peace? Well, he says so loudly. But one questions if he were not striving to convince himself and us that he had found it. There is a basic conflict in him resulting from the situation of his life. With strong passions, he had reacted almost to a celibate creed. He toiled at peasant labor and came into a luxury-loaded table. With wealth he could not renounce, social rank he could not escape, his convictions were for equal brotherhood. His ideals were thus thwarted by his environment, which explains his pathetic final effort to escape. There is more unity in him before and after the conversion than he knew. In all his later teaching, is there anything more morally searching than the simple portrayal of Prince Andrei's relation to his little wife in War and Peace, or than the remorseless showing of deeds as destiny in Anna Karenina? Characteristic of his later work is the slavery of our times. Its initial thesis is so just that there can be no true reform of society except by making over the men and women who compose society. When he applies his thesis, who can follow him? He will sweep away the whole range of institutions which represent the slow adjustment of will to will and interest to interest through ages of human progress. If Tolstoy is wrong in seeing all the evil at the top of society and the good at the bottom, if he fails to appreciate the eternal womanly, and the highest form of personal love, if he erred in his judgment of art, how needed is his message by the modern world? In urging the true simplification of life, the return from the adventitious to the real, from the things on the surface to those at the heart, he arraigned the dominant fault of our time. In insisting that man cannot live on the closed circle of knowledge, but must rest in that larger circle of faith, that is the substance of things hoped for, he brings comfort to those adrift on the sea of doubt. Above all, his strength lies in teaching the brotherhood of humanity that we need the others and all the others, that he who cuts himself off from any part of our common human life does so to his own detriment. There is something still deeper, that somber moral earnestness marking him early and late before as well as after his conversion. It is that which, under the gray sky of the steppes, and in spite of the scars from reckless years, gives him his place among those moral and spiritual leaders who contribute the dynamic element in the progress of mankind. Tolstoy, Moral Leadership in Mysterious Russia, has been the subject of another program in the series titled Lives of Great Men, presented by Dr. Edward Howard Griggs, distinguished lecturer, critic, and author.
Next week, Dr. Griggs will speak on Ibsen, psychologist and critic of modern society. Copies of tonight's discussion of Tolstoy may be obtained by addressing the National Broadcasting Company, Radio City, New York, or the station to which you are listening. That was Lives of Great Men from 1939, highlighting the author and officer at Sevastopol during the Crimean War, Leo Tolstoy. Next up is the author of many great pieces of work, including Gunga Din, The Man Who Would Be King, The Jungle Book, and many more, Rudyard Kipling from 1939's Lives of Great Men. Here you go. The National Broadcasting Company presents Lives of Great Men, a series on great leaders in human progress, presented by Dr. Edward Howard Griggs, distinguished lecturer, critic, and author of The Philosophy of Art and many other books. In his talk, Dr. Griggs is building a story of civilization based on outstanding characters through the ages and how each one influences his own and future times. This evening, Dr. Griggs will discuss Rudyard Kipling, interpreter of the British Empire. We present Edward Howard Griggs. My friend, Rudyard Kipling has been one of the outstanding literary figures of our time, writer of tales portraying both the English and the native life of India, of verses that reveal the British Tommy Atkins, and leading interpreter of the spirit of British imperialism. Almost forgotten in our absorption in vast changes since the World War, Kipling's recent death and now-published autobiography have wakened fresh interest in him and in his delightful books. Moreover, his view of Britain's relation to the world has challenging appeal to her in the present critical hour of her destiny. Kipling was born in Bombay, India in 1865, and his earliest vague memories were of that colorful tropical land. His father was a gifted painter, later curator of the museum at Lahore and head of an art school. Kipling speaks of his mother as Celtic, fine, gifted, and a writer of poems. His initial view in telling his life story is that all things conspired in his favor. This shows his sanguine temperament, since many and one living through his early sufferings would have cried out against hampering fate. At seven, Kipling was taken to London and placed in a home for colonial officers' sons, kept by an evangelical but hard and heartless woman. Six years the boy suffered in this house of desolation, meantime attending day school. One month each year was heaven, as December was spent at the home of his mother's sister, wife of the painter, Byrne Jones. There, in an atmosphere of highest culture, he lived a normal child's life. The gifted older persons, including William Morris, Uncle Topsy, were playmates of the children. Kipling's cousin, Stanley Baldwin, was often of the group. Later on, his aunt asked him why he had not told of his 11-month annual misery. Kipling thinks the answer is the children are like dumb animals, taking what comes, and also that he feared further beatings if he complained. The deeper reason, I think, was an instinctive stoicism, marking him from the start and throughout his life. His mother came home for a visit and quickly discovered the situation, for as she stooped to kiss her boy, he threw up his arm to ward off the expected blow. The next period was four years of schooling at the far end of England, Kipling and his sister living in a home of culture with three dear old ladies. The school's brutalities he later exploited in Stalky and Company. Nevertheless, he thinks the school years were of great value, particularly in training precision in writing and in opening to him the world of literature. He came upon Browning's Men and Women and was fascinated by the character portrayal, noting particularly the parallel of his early life and that of Fra Lippo Lippi, 
In both cases, the experience of the artist fitted him to portray the world as he saw it. At 17, he was offered the place of associate editor on an English newspaper in India, and eagerly accepting, returned to his native land. The work was fiercely demanding, extending to 16 hours a day. He experienced all the miseries of tropical heat and diseases, but stuck doggedly to his task. Kipling attributes to Walter Bizant's All in the Garden Fair, the inspiration to write of common things, observable in the world immediately about him. So began the plain tales from the hills and departmental ditties published in several papers and periodicals. While this fine work was to become the foundation of his fame, it had for the time being only an indifferent audience. With the urge to write dominant, he sold the tales and verses so far produced to secure funds for a trip around the world to England. In the course of it, he crossed America from west to east. At that time, he was able to see something good in us, and his American letters, while castigating our obvious vices, are not like his later drastic criticism. On Kipling's arrival in England, success came quickly. Henley and other editors of magazines eagerly accepted his work, and he soon had money enough to buy back the stories and poems he had sold in India and republish them in England. At the same time, he began the barrack room ballads, interpreting in dialect verse all aspects of the British soldier's life. Similar work followed through the years, gathered up in the Seven Seas and other volumes. As typical, hear a part of the song of the banjo. You couldn't pack a Broadwood half a mile. You mustn't leave a fiddle in the damp. You couldn't raft an organ up the Nile and play it in an equatorial swamp. I travel with the cooking pots and pails. I'm sandwiched between the coffee and the pork. And when the dusty column checks and tails, you should hear me spur the rear guard to a walk with my pilly, willy, winky, winky pop. Oh, it's any tune that comes into my head, so I keep them moving forward till they drop, so I play them up to water and to bed. In the silence of the camp before the fight, when it's good to make your will and say your prayer, you can hear my strumpty tumpty overnight, explaining ten to one was always fair. With my tumpa, 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 tump. In the desert where the dung-fed camp smoke curled, there was never a voice before us till I led our lonely chorus, I, the war drum of the white man round the world. Kipling has caught the very music of the banjo. His feeling for meter was one of his finest poetic gifts. An illness led to Kipling's tour in Italy. Since he went to visit the British Dominion, South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand, returning to India in company of General Booth of the Salvation Army, and then home to England. Kipling, Kipling married an American girl at 27 and started with his wife on another world tour. He crossed our continent, got as far as Yokohama, when his bank's failure forced him to turn back. He went to the home of his wife's relatives in Vermont, living for a time in a small cottage near them. Success came quickly again, as he developed a new field with the charming jungle books, which, with other stories, added innumerable children to his wide audience. His captain's courageous, born of visits to Gloucester, Massachusetts, and attendance at the annual memorial service for fishermen lost at sea, has recently been made into an outstandingly great moving picture. American publishers begged for his books, our public eagerly bought them, and he was able to build a beautiful nalaka intended as a permanent home. He did not like his neighbors, however, and came to detest our conglomerate population, both native and immigrant. Our political chicanery and exploitation at that time of ignorant labor disgusted him. 
His most drastic comment on us occurs toward the close of his autobiography. In narrating a trip of continuous ovations in a private car furnished by the head of the Canadian Pacific Railway across Canada, taken because he had been told that Canada was coming out of its spiritual and material subjection to the United States. Contrasting the two peoples, he remarks, always the marvel to which the Canadians seemed insensible was that on one side of an imaginary line should be safety, law, honor, and obedience, and on the other, frank, brutal decivilization, and that despite this, Canada should be impressed by any aspect whatever of the United States. The autobiography does not mention the more pungent reason for his dislike, the long unjust quarrel inflicted on him by one of his wife's relatives, which, however, was more than sufficiently exploited in the press at the time. Thus, after some years, England looked more attractive to Kipling, and he abandoned us to our vices and returned to the seat of empire. We regret that Kipling may not be numbered among our American authors, but recognizing a measure of justice in his criticisms, it is easy to forgive his diatribes, since we are so used to being called bad names, Shylock and others, by those whom we have generously served. Before leaving America, Kipling had met Theodore Roosevelt and saw him again in England after the Spanish-American War. The two held much the same view of world relations. While criticizing Theodore Roosevelt's anti-British views, which he thought adopted for political purposes, Kipling says of him, my own idea of him was that he was a much bigger man than his people understood, or at that time knew how to use, and that he and they might have been better off had he been born 20 years later. For some time, Kipling lived half the year in England, half in South Africa. Cecil Rhodes became his close friend, and he knew and approved Jameson. He served Britain remarkably well in the Boer War. The youth made a song of his absent-minded beggar, earned, he tells us, a million dollars for the cause. In 1907, Kipling was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. The recognition of his work was now worldwide. During the World War, he contributed poems and articles, but stood somewhat apart. In his later work is an increasing didactic element, but his imperialist views remained unchanged. It is strange that he was never made poet laureate, since no other poet of his time approximated him, either in interpreting England and her far-flung empire, or in the wide recognition he received. No poet laureate since Tennyson has written a patriotic hymn approximating an impressive dignity, Kipling's recessional, lest we forget. Surely no one has interpreted the finest spirit of British imperialism in carrying the white man's burden as he has done. Perhaps his criticism of governmental incompetence was too drastic. His singing of the sorrows of Tommy Atkins was too frank. Possibly the laurel crown might have been his had he not written such poems as The Sons of the Widow. Have you heard of the widow at Windsor with a hairy gold crown on her head? She has ships on the foam, she has millions at home, and she pays us poor beggars in red. Oh, poor beggars in red. Then here's to the widow at Windsor, and here's to the stores and the guns, the men and the horses, what makes up the forces of Mrs. Victoria's son. Poor beggars, Victoria's son. Walk wide of the widow at Windsor, for all her creation she owns. We have bought her the same with the sword and the flame, and we've sorted it down with our bones. Poor beggars, it's blue with our bones. Hands off of the sons of the widow. Hands off of the goods in her shop. For the kings must come down and the emperor's frown when the widow at Windsor says stop. 
poor beggars, we're sent to say stop. We have heard of the widow at Windsor. It's safest to let her alone. For our centuries we stand by the sea and the land, wherever the bugles are blown. Then here's to the sons of the widow, wherever, however they roam. Here's all they desire, and if they require, a speedy return to their own. Poor beggars, they'll never see own. Has there ever been written another poem as effective as this one in the cause of peace? The recessional must be regarded as the crown of Kipling's work. While written as a sort of protest at the time of Queen Victoria's second jubilee, it gives just the appeal and warning all English-speaking peoples need at the present dark hour. God of our fathers, known of all, Lord of our far-flung battle line, beneath whose awful hand we hold dominion over palm and pine, Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. The tumult and the shouting dies. The captains and the kings depart. Still stands thine ancient sacrifice and humble and a contrite heart. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Far called our navies melt away. On dune and headland sinks the fire. Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. Judge of the nations, spare us yet, lest we forget lest we forget. If drunk with sight of power, we loose wild tongues that have not thee in awe, such boasting as the Gentiles use or lesser breeds without the law. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Rudyard Kipling, interpreter of the British Empire, has been the subject of another program in the series titled Lives of Great Men. Presented by Dr. Edward Howard Griggs, distinguished lecturer, critic, and author. Next week, Dr. Griggs will speak on Pierre Loti, the sensitive dreamer as child and man. Copies of tonight's discussion of Rudyard Kipling may be obtained by addressing the National Broadcasting Company, Radio City, New York, or the station to which you are listening. There it is. That's it from 1939, the program called Lives of Great Men, highlighting Leo Tolstoy and Rudyard Kipling in this episode's discovery from the old-time radio archives. You can hear more like this on my sister podcast called Vintage Radio Adventures, which I have... Look, I got to get back to updating because I haven't had any updates in a while, but there are still some very cool historical and pulp adventures on there for your listening pleasure while you paint and build at your station, right? And before I close up here, I'd like to thank all of you for the birthday wishes. It was my birthday last month, right? I like it. I'm older now. I'm ancient. Believe it or not, I was your age once. But also for continuing to listen to Shot and Shield. I really do enjoy having this time uh, with you to talk about gaming and history and uh, all that that inspires us to play this game uh, and this awesome period of time. Many thanks to Claude Bailey, Wargaming's very own bon vivant, and friend of the podcast for agreeing to chat with me about gambling and wargaming. Alas, it is time, though, to close the show. And I would like to thank you for listening in Copenhagen, Denmark, Lima, Ohio, and in Izmit, Turkey. I have been the Lord Scott from the Duchy of Florida. I'm out.
This has been a production of the Experience 13 Podcast Network. 13! Your electricity. 13!